This is Stories of Win, where we showcase amazing women in neuroscience. We chat with them about their research, their unique journeys through academia, and what drives their passion for studying the brain. Here is one of their stories. This is Nancy with Stories of Win, and I am here with Dr. Brandy Tiernan, who is an assistant professor at Western Carolina University, and she studies emotional regulation and cognitive control. Thank you for letting me interview, Brandy. Thanks for interviewing me. I'm super excited. Me too. We always like starting our interviews asking, how do you become interested in studying the brain? How did that happen for you? Well, I've always been really interested in the brain. I've always been a little scientist. From the time I was a kid, I was interested in botany. My mom bought me one of these like books with all these botany experiments and would let me get like uh, plants and I would put like different form, different stalks of celery in different cups and I'd talk to one and or sing to another one and I'd oh leave the other God. one alone. <laughs> <laughs> like, I mean, I was like pretty much an only child. My sisters are 11 and 13 years older than me. So I had to make my own fun and um and science was yeah. your fun <laughs> science was my fun I loved it and um I've always been interested in the mind and psychology and one of my sisters studied psychology and she would come home and do little experiments on me and I thought that was the coolest thing so um when I got to undergrad I started working in psychi psychology labs and um from there just sort of it grew it grew. I worked in a lab that did EEG work, but they weren't actually collecting any EEG data at the time. And um, I started asking more questions about it. Uh, I think when I got into my master's program, well, actually, I had a job in um, psychoneuroendocrinology um, at the med school at, close by at UT Southwestern Medical Center. And that really piqued my interest. Just like clinical trials and fMRI and um, that's when I knew for sure that this was something I had to pursue so I went the experimental psychology route and from there I went into a program where I could do some neuroscience work so so then your sister picked your psychology interest that combined with like you you definitely had a knack for science and like for experiments you were a little scientist when you were little mm -hmm. and then you said that in college so you knew that you wanted to major in psychology and then you had a, a research lab experience and then that sort of like that was it yeah that solidified it for me i worked in a couple of research labs when i was an undergrad um one was a project doing examining health outcomes of women and you had to do these eight hour interviews <laughs> and it was a longitudinal study. I really enjoyed doing that. That was an amazing experience, but then I really more so enjoyed going and conducting experiments with participants. Um, that was, that was my bread and butter. And so that sounds like pretty early on in college, you knew you wanted to go to grad school. Mm-hmm, for sure. I mean, I've known that I was going to go to grad school. I look back in my high school, um, they, the memory books that they give you when you're graduating, mm -hmm. and I wrote down, like, what my future would be. And at the time, I didn't even think a doctoral degree would be, like, something I would have to go for. But I was like, I'm going to get my master's degree. I always knew I was going to go to grad school. That's really cool. Awesome. Like, like you were, like, aiming high in the, like, even when you were in high school. Yeah. 
That's true. I was a nerd. Yeah, long live the nerds. <laughs> I was right. a nerd too. <laughs> and and how was that? Like applying to grad school, and it sounds like you knew that you wanted to work with humans. Like you like interacting, like collecting data with humans. So that meant like, you know, like you were going to probably keep your research at the level of human work, not animal research. But how, how, how was it applying for grad school and deciding what to study and what lab to join? Well, <clears throat> that's an interesting question because I had to go through an entire process. So the first thing I did out of undergrad was apply to take graduate courses at my school that I was already graduating from. So I was graduating from the University of North Texas. And so I took like a couple of classes there. Are you from um, Texas? I am from Texas. Oh, cool. <laughs> yes. So I started working at law firms because I was like out of undergrad. Yeah out of undergrad because I, I worked for student legal services all four years of college. And so I was like, maybe, and I was a criminal justice minor and a philosophy minor. So I was like, maybe wow. I want to be a lawyer. Um, so I decided um, to try out law firms and I got a job right out of college working for this law firm that represented all of the school districts in Texas. And That was so interesting and fun. But then I got a job at a product liability firm and all they do is litigate. And so I spent so much time like getting product, like getting ready for trials, like in production and all that stuff. And like, didn't even have time to unpack my, uh, my apartment. I lived in Dallas, I moved to Dallas and from Denton where my school was located and, and, I had to like work all the time. The only room that was unpacked in my apartment was my bathroom so I could get ready. There was sometimes I would actually sleep at the office because there was so much work to do. And it was a family firm. So they sort of had these expectations that I would. So I was like, maybe I'll go get a JD PhD and I'll do, you know, clinical psychology at SMU and do a JD program. But I wound up just switching away from <laughs> moving away from law because, you know, I've, I've had some rough experiences and that was a rough experience at that job with their expectations of what they wanted me to do. And like, you know, being a young person in their twenties, also wanting to have friends and experiences. So, um, I left that position and I started working at UT Southwestern Medical Center in Dallas. And, um, I was, doing dual diagnosis studies with um, border, not borderline, but like bipolar. A, like as a research tech or? or? Mm -hmm. <clears throat> as a clinical research coordinator. And um, that was a lot of fun. I met some really interesting people, but I also made some really, really good friends while I was there. And I learned a lot. Um, so was that your first research experience with like studying emotions? Like that was the beginning? Because right now you are studying that too. So yeah, I mean, we really didn't, we really most more, we mostly focused on, you know, mood disorders, mm -hmm. and, and not necessarily emotion in the way that I focus on it. Um, it was more like clinical trials, um, and then getting them to come in every week and remember to come in every week. Oh, okay. And, uh, 
Mm -hmm. So a lot of them were bipolar and would have, uh, it was dual diagnosis, so they'd also have a substance um, disorder. So then essentially they were testing like different drugs and seeing how it affected. Mm -hmm. Yeah, like they had some taking uh, like acetylcholine supplements um, and seeing how that had an impact on their ability to concentrate and to focus and to stop using substances. And then we had a study with naltrexone. We were seeing if that would have an effect on alcohol use because it was predominantly used for opiates and not alcohol, mm-hmm. but they started using it um, in the study with people with bipolar and, and alcohol addiction. And that was also really challenging too. It was really sad to see some people come in. I had one man that came in that couldn't even sign his consent form. We had to ask him to come back first thing in the morning because we had to have him sign the consent when he was not drunk. Oh, wow. So we met him at 6 a.m. first thing so that he could blow a blood alcohol level at zero. Well, um, I guess I'm I'm looking at your your past grants and you've had a lot of experience working with uh, patient populations. Like here I see borderline personality disorder. So and like you're, you know, collecting data from these patient populations. It, It must be hard first, like what you're saying, like seeing the symptoms and seeing like the impact that the diseases have in their life and also just like practical aspects of doing the experiments. Yeah, I think that's the hard part about working with, well, so with the borderline, just to be clear, like I don't actually get to work with patient populations now because I have no clinical degree because I'm, you know, a cognitive neuroscientist. I have to just assess the traits associated with it and then sort of do it that way. Like who who measures up as somebody who could possibly be BPD? I can't actually call them BPD. Oh, I see. So sim- <clears throat> symptoms, like, you know, who's like on the symptom like a spectrum but the spectrum right Mm -hmm. but um but when I was working with clinical populations it was really hard to see people that were having these terrible experiences it's particularly homelessness and you know this is when they would come in and they would get warmth or air conditioning and you know a cup of coffee and people would treat them civilly and they get tough. Um, Also listening to people answer the questions. I would do these diagnostic tests and I would do these depression scales and different types of mood scales with them every week and have them do these different tasks. And um, uh, it was definitely hard after a while to separate, you know, my feelings from the professional aspect of the work. So When I left the job at the law firm and I had thought, oh, yeah, I want to get a JD PhD, I just just decided that, like, okay, I was going to do clinical. But then after working in this clinical job, I was like, I can't do clinical work. I think I'm going to do cognitive Um, because I knew as a cognitive psychologist, I could still study all the same issues. I would have to study them differently. But... um, so that's it what was you, just too hard. Would, that's what you ended up doing for your master's and, and your PhD, mm-hmm. like cognitive neuroscience. Yes, yes. Tell us a little bit about your research in your master's and your PhD. So my master's program was terminal. I applied to master's programs all um, 
while I was working at UT Southwestern, and I didn't get into any program. I got into UNC's master pro- master's program, but I had applied for their PhD program. And my mentor from undergrad, I worked in his lab, he invited me to come to Western Kentucky where he was. And I, although UNC sounded good, I mean, it could, going to Chapel Hill would have probably led to me getting a PhD at Chapel Hill. But I knew after I got a terminal master's that I'd have more options, you know, otherwise, yeah. other other places. So I go to work with him. And at first we were, I was working with him doing experiments looking at source memory and perspective memory, but that really wasn't my jam. He wound up leaving the university and then I started working with this woman. Well, during, during your master's, he left? He left, he left after my first year. And yeah, he went to go work for the army research Institute and that sucked. It was really, it was like, oh my gosh, like this is, that sounds like an added added stress and challenge as a master's student, like if your mentor just like leaves the institution. It but but I had really coveted um Sharon Mutter's students. I wanted to work in her lab because she was such a good mentor. And I would see the sort of hands-on mentorship they got and I loved taking her classes like she was such a good professor and so when he left she walked up to me and was like I want you to come to my lab and I was like that's crazy because I want to be in your lab (laughs) (laughs) this was destiny this is like yes Shannon's lab (laughs) (laughs) so she was she was wonderful she was a wonderful mentor like Whenever I think about good mentorship, I think about her. She was always like, it's my job to train you. Um, There were never any hard feelings. I knew there were definitely like drafts after draft after draft and you get annoyed with having to do that. That's not unlike any other student Mm -hmm. experience. Yeah. But that's normal. I it, exactly. It's like save that draft because that's gonna come back. And yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I know I've written this somewhere <laughs> or done this analysis. Um. So yeah, she was really fun to work for, and she had. She also just supported me in ways that were really important, like financially, my master's program costed money. Like I didn't have a ton of scholarships, you know, it's a terminal master's program. So she would nominate me for these fellowships and I would, you know, get my tuition covered from these fellowships. And so she did a really good job looking out for me. She was a really good mentor. And so when I applied for PhD programs, I got into almost every school I applied to. I wound up going to Iowa State because the person that I cited throughout my thesis was a professor at Iowa State, and he accepted me. Um, And I went to that recruitment weekend, and out of the students that I would work with, I felt like I gelled the most with those Mm -hmm. grad students, and I felt like... If Iowa felt like the right place. And I mean, Iowa was where I fell in love. So that's where you found your husband. Mm-hmm. Was he also a grad student or just like he was a person in Iowa? 
He was a person in Iowa. <laughs> My little corn-fed Iowan husband. <laughs> That's awesome. And what was your research about in Iowa? Is that when you started studying like emotions? Well, um, so in, I didn't even talk about my research. I just talked about what a good mentor Sharon was. That's but like, true. Yeah, we can back. We can, we can reverse. <laughs> uh, but I studied aging and cognition. So particularly the attentional systems and how those degrade as we age. So um, now it's known as like the frontal parietal network and there's different tasks that tap into it, particularly this Stroop task. Um, so I did some continuation of work that she had published and we're actually like just now working on getting this stuff published now, but that's okay. At least it's getting published. <laughs> and yeah, so we, studied um, older adults and their aging brains. And um, I knew that I enjoyed working with older adults. It was kind of like a different sort of patient population to me, you know, just working with a special group. And I liked the stories that they had to tell me. And I thought they were like excellent participants, excellent, so compliant. And they worked really hard at the tasks. It was very different from like the undergrads that sign up on Sona, right? Like <laughs> um, you knew you were going to get really good data from your older adults. And so um, I decided to work with my mentor at um, Iowa State and um, he did a lot of aging and cognition work, but his was in the neuroscience track. Like his was definitely neuroscience. And so I, I knew that from that point forward, after my master's degree that I wanted to do something with psychophys. So I knew I was either going to do fMRI work or I was going to do eye tracking or I was going to do EEG. And I really wanted to do EEG. And because um, I, I thought it was just like the most accessible one mm -hmm. out of all of them. Yeah, fMRI especially, like it's so expensive and limited. Like, mm -hmm. like you know, like the there's one machine, a whole department, and then you have to schedule it, and it's expensive. So EEGs, it's more portable. <laughs> it is. It's it's portable. It's affordable. Um, you know, it's it's easy to travel with it and and get participants that way if you need to. Um, it was just it's just and it's a really good measure of brain activity. And I think it's one of the best measures of brain activity, but I'm obviously biased. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I started doing um, work in, in this lab, but he didn't really study affect as much. I was the one that brought the affect interest into the laboratory. My lab partner studied video games, and that was very sexy at the time. Um, so they had a lot of... And was it with the aging population as well? So you were studying affect changes as we age? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was definitely studying affect um, in the aging population, which was really fun. Um, so um, we we're looking at these experiments, one experiment um, where they have people just free view pictures and you see um, sort of like their affective reaction to it or response to it. And we look at this waveform called the late positive potential. And the late positive potential is an index of arousal. And so as these people are free viewing these images, like you'll see this late positive potential peak around 300 milliseconds. And 
it's really interesting how fast it peaks and then how it sustains itself for the, for the, the length of the picture. Are the pictures like something positive or something negative? <clears throat> so they would be um, a mixture of positive, negative, and neutral images. Mm -hmm. And so, um, and so you would get these three different waveforms for the different picture types. Um, so when you show negative images, you're definitely more aroused than when you see positive images. Uh, that's because younger adults typically have a negativity bias. And um, what we wanted to see is if older adults would process these negative images in the same way that younger adults do, because we already know that from a lot of data that there's a socio-emotional selectivity theory where, you know, the closer you are to the end of life, the more likely you are to focus on more positive things and really? sort of select your, yeah, yeah. It's so funny. Like when you study something, you kind of think that like everybody knows that stuff, you know? And these waves that you're describing, are they in localized to a specific part of the brain or are they like throughout the whole brain? These arousal so, waves, <laughs> waves of arousal. Yeah. <laughs> these waves of arousal. So we know sort of where the stuff is happening because you can do source analyses that, you know, can um, estimate mm -hmm. where the signal is generating. But we also know from fMRI studies that this maps over maps onto the these appraisals of these images maps onto the frontal lobe. Okay, so we're talking like frontal cortex, frontal lobe of the brain. Mm -hmm. Yeah, anterior cingulate, frontal frontal cortex, and so. And did you find like was it was it true that like the older adults were more responsive to the po positive images compared to the younger adults? Is that so what you found? With that in mind, we didn't have any positive images. We made sure that we kept them with three categories. We so we were using this international affective picture set that's been normed with younger adults. It hasn't been normed with um, the aging population. Um, but I mean, we are using them anyway. We split them up into three different categories. Those categories were images of violence, grief, um, pictures depicting grief and loss, and then pictures depicting mutilations. Oh, wow. And, it's a tough yeah, study so to be a participant really of. <laughs> Seriously, we, I was so scared to run these older adults and they would say like, these look like police images. <laughs> like, <laughs> these are definitely police photos, aren't they? But like a lot of them looked photoshopped, but, <laughs> <laughs> um, but they were still gruesome nonetheless. Let's just say that there and they were all images of humans because we know from our from my lab in grad school mm -hmm. from another study that we process obviously we process different categories of images differently and so valence doesn't really matter i mean you need to separate people from objects from animals right mm -hmm. and this picture set has people objects and animals and most people throw all these things in together and so that just muddies up the, the oh. water so instead we just made sure that we had images with people in them and um these three categories of these negative images and so um we like when the there's two presentations of the pictures 
one presentation of the picture, the first presentation of the picture, they just see it for a second. It appears on the screen and then they get a cue. That cue tells them to either attend to the picture. So think about what they just saw and ruminate over that basically, or to reappraise the picture or reinterpret that picture. And so if they're going to reinterpret it, they have to make it less negative than it appears to them or more positive, however you want to say it. And, um, you know, we have them practice to see if they're actually doing the reappraisal. Mm-hmm. Like, so you have to think it's not so bad. Is that sort of like the reappraisal to think like, oh, it's not so negative. It's, it's less. Right. Ne- okay. So yeah, talking like to yourself, like you're talking to yourself. <laughs> yeah. Essentially, like, yeah, you think to yourself, you have to find some way to downregulate, you know, like either, mm, either mm-hmm. you're thinking to yourself, like what's in this picture isn't real. Oh yeah. It's just a picture. It's an image. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like, you know, the, the famous picture from the data set is this man holding a gun to his head. And you can think to yourself, like maybe somebody takes the gun away or Mm -hmm. maybe um, somebody comes in the room and stops him. Maybe it's just a movie. Mm -hmm. So we would help people sort of think about the strategies beforehand. And what you find is that at the very beginning when they first, so presumably when they see the picture a second time after the cue, Mm -hmm. they're supposed to have regulated that image, right? Mm, Yeah. So the first time you're seeing the image, there's no regulation, but the second time they've already regulated it because they did the reappraisal thing. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. Or they, so we compare that with the times that they're told to attend versus when they're told to reinterpret the picture. And, uh, when you, at the first presentation of the picture, what's really interesting is to see, like, um, you've heard of the P3, the wave the waves, the waves of arousal that you were describing. <laughs> So the P3 is also an index of arousal, but it can be more so for like targets, uh, things that capture novel things that capture your attention. And it also arises around the same point in time, except it's a real peak because it's like, oh, that's a new thing or that's um, shocking. And we see that older adults would get a P3 for the grief pictures um, oh, no. And younger adults would get a P3 for the violent pictures. So older adults had a that P3, so that response to the novelty was longer or shorter? Um. So the it was it was a short, brief burst, right? The first time they would see the image, the, the for some reason that image was salient. Those types of images were salient to them. And the best reappraisal for them (laughs) were the images of grief, right? So for older adults, they were really able to reappraise grief and loss, pictures depicting grief and loss. However, the younger adults were best at reappraising the pictures that involve violent images Mm -hmm. or violence. And. And saying that they, they're able to reappraise is based on their neural response. So, like, the neural response changed the most after reappraising. Okay. Mm-hmm. All right. But when you take the data and you look at it all together, the response between reappraise and attend for older adults, like, 
was the voltage change was very little. And so what it looks like across the board is that older adults were always reappraising. Okay. So no matter what image they saw, no matter what. They're just regulating themselves. They're just regulating themselves the whole time. Yeah. The big differences were for younger adults, but the older adults, they were just like, we're chilling. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not going to worry about this picture. (laughs) It's not going to get to me. And that data maps onto that socio-emotional selectivity theory. Um, And so those were the kinds of studies that I did you know, looking at how people can hold on to a particular mood when being faced with other sorts of like distractions. And so we would do like a mood induction and then we would have them um, then rate several negative images after Mm -hmm. this positive mood induction. Mm -hmm. And then we would test or then we'd ask them about their mood afterwards and see if they could sustain this positive mood when faced with all this negativity. And that was a fun study because that was really a cognitive control because really emotion regulation is quick cognitive control of emotion. Mm -hmm. And, um, cause it, it takes your, it takes some reinterpreting and, and the frontal lobes (laughs) to really make that happen. Some inhibiting. Yeah. So that's sort of like everything. I'm, I'm not a cognitive scientist at all. So all of these processes that you're describing, like reappraisal and, I don't know, emotional regulation are behind CBT. Is it CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy? Yeah. Like that's sort of like the processes that are used. I I know a little about a CBT. Um, I know that they are, it's becoming more aware of what the... Of the emotional response or your response to the stimuli or something? Yeah, being aware of your response to different stimuli that could be triggering for you. For instance, if you were a drug user and, you know, what are the feelings you feel before you go to the, the, the drug house? Like, what can we do to change that process, right? So it's like a lot of self-awareness involved. Mm-hmm. Self-awareness, okay. Okay, maybe we can fast forward a little bit to your research now. <laughs> like how to tell us about your research now in your lab. Um, so I started to look at how emotion and cognition work together to either help us meet goals or how they impede our ability to meet goals. And so um, generally my work still uses the Stroop task. I thought I was going to get away from it, but I can't <laughs> get away from it. <laughs> it's just such a good task. So the, the, um, the, the goal is doing the Stroop test correctly in, in, the, in the research? Mm-hmm. But so for one Stroop task, if you present people with a positive word before an incongruent stimulus. So an mm-hmm. incongruent stimulus in this case would be for the Struve task, a 
the word red written in blue ink and you have to name the ink color. Well, a congruent stimulus, red printed in red ink is really easy to name the ink color because there's no interference, right? Yeah. Um, And so if you present a positive word before the incongruent trials, positive words eliminate stroop interference. Really? Yes. Positive information somehow does something to changes our attention in some way. And so... And how um, positive are they? Are they like, give me an example of a positive statement. Like, baby. (laughs) 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 I love babies. I love babies and cookies and puppies. And (laughs) those are the kinds of positive words that people get. Cookies, that's (laughs) awesome. (laughs) Is there... So what if you put negative words? Like, would that affect or it doesn't have an effect? It it does not have an effect. It doesn't make them worse. It just makes them... They just perform the same way as they would if they were neutral, if there were no words at all. Mm. I guess this is almost... I know this is a stretch, but you know, like, all these, like, waves of of like life gurus and life coaches that are like, you have to talk positively to yourself before you're doing things. Like maybe there's Mm -hmm. something to that. Well, (laughs) it's a complicated story, right? Because so what I'm interested is understanding how emotion impacts cognitive control. And so I'm interested in this dual mechanisms theory of cognitive control, which splits um, splits these forms of control into two, proactive control, where you're vigilant, basically, and you're expecting um, something to happen. You're expecting that incongruent stimulus versus the react- um, reactive control, which is when you're more so just responding in time. So um, if I got a lot of congruent trials and then I have a, I throw just a few incongruent trials in there, that's more reactive. But if I have a bunch of incongruent trials and I throw just a few congruent in there, well, I'm going to be more attentive on those blocks because I have to engage more. I, mm-hmm. I know the next stimulus is going to be incongruent. So that's how you can test um, or manipulate cognitive control on these different tasks. And when you manipulate cognitive control, there's no effective emotion. Oh, so if so, you're changing, if you're... T- so when if you are intermingling the types of trials, so that mm-hmm. would be um, manipulating the cognitive controls, then, then the the effect there's no effect of putting the positive words before it mm-hmm. hmm so it is complicated yeah yeah i understand yeah. Now. <laughs> it is it is so complicated so um now that i know that cognitive control sort of which is a good thing honestly mm-hmm. because this cognitive control sort of supersedes this being Emotion, attentive in yeah. this way yeah um, that you can sort of put that away and focus on the task at hand and get that done. Mm-hmm. Um, because it's um, it, we use proactive and reactive control interchangeably mm-hmm. all the time. It's funny because when I looked at the EEG data um, initially, it was a 50-50 Stroop task. So they had half incongruent and half congruent. And I was like, oh, they're definitely going to use proactive control because I already knew that behaviorally, because it was a replication of a behavioral study, um, another behavioral study, I was like, behaviorally, the the 
positive trials are going to wipe out the Stroop effect. So they're using proactive control. That was my assumption. But then after you look at the data, you see they're going back between proactive and reactive controls because there's different indices. Uh, oh, in the EEG. Proactive. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then when you manipulate cognitive control, it eliminates that effect of emotion. Okay. So... I guess um, your if you could state your research goal for your lab, like for the next ten years, what would it be? Oh gosh, that's so. Um, so my interests are all over the place. I think that's mm-hmm. one thing that, like, hmm, I don't know how to say it, but it's like either stupidity or ambition. I don't know (laughs) what it is. Maybe it's a combination of both, right? Just because I've always had a lot of interest. I've always like wanted to study a lot of different things. And so I'm really interested in stigma. And that's where I did the focus group work was examining how stigma impacts these different communities. And if I had to give a statement for my laboratory... It would just be studying the interaction of emotion and cognition. I mean, it would have to be as broad as that because I look at it in aging populations and I also am interested in studying borderline personality. So, and that that comes from a personal source, a personal promise that I made to myself. I had a, a family member die by suicide and I'm pretty sure that she was, borderline. you know, borderline. And after that happened, I promised myself that I would, you know, study the cognitive processes associated with the way that people with borderline think. I mean, there's maladaptive thinking. Mm -hmm. Um, And so with me studying emotion and cognition, why not? Right. Mm -hmm. Why not fold that in? And stigma, do you consider that like as a process that affects your emotions then? Oh, absolutely. Mm -hmm. So stigma, there's a lot of self-stigma, particularly with people who have mental illness. Um, People have um, issues with self-stigma and that sort of get that gets projected onto others and i want to see how people with disorders process stigma and process stigma in others uh particularly those who have traits associated with bpd um who deal with rejection sensitivity and distress tolerance um or a distress intolerance, really. Cool. All it's, right. I wanna... like, there's a lot. There's a lot yeah. going on. <laughs> no, it's fine. Like that. I mean, I think that you you started your academic career with very broad interests, right? Because you you have minors in psychology, and you briefly consider going into a route where you could combine psychology and law. So, like, you are a person of many interests. So it kind of makes sense that your research program uh, is broad. Right. <laughs> but like pro- pro- program officers keep telling me that I need to narrow that down. <laughs> <laughs> I'm doing it. I'm making it happen. Yeah. I just, um, yeah, you know, got to get some of this work out. Um, but I did my dissertation on, you know, I involved metacognition and I've, so all the things that I've done, I continue to be interested in. Mm -hmm. So it's the same four or five things, 
that I carry with me. It just depends on how I decide to combine them. And when you decide on what they are more broadly, it's emotion and cognition always. Self-regulation. Is there one particular project that you have ongoing right now, a research project that you're really excited about, like a specific one? Yes, I am. Like, like yeah. Which one's your favorite um, these days? So um, I'm working on a project with Michael Crawley at Yale, and we're examining how different types of perturbation are being perturbed perturbation I can't say the word (laughs) impacts cognition for uh, people who scale high on measures of rejection sensitivity and distress intolerance and impulsivity and so these are all these are all traits associated with borderline personality disorder Mm -hmm. that's the connection that makes sense yeah so we're we, we bring people into the laboratory. Um, we have them fill out a ton of questionnaires because, because I can't diagnose them. Mm-hmm. Right. And I can't like sit there and do a diagnostic interview. Um, we have them do all these questionnaires um, involving things about personality disorders and other emotional stuff. And then we have bring them into the room and have them do the proactive reactive control stroop task. And after they finish that, we do this the trier social stress test, um, or maybe What's it's trier. Um, <laughs> it's a really stressful manipulation. So the the experimenter walks into the room and tells them, "Here is a piece of paper and a pad, or here's you know a whiteboard. I want you to write for two minutes. You know uh, what you would do if you were being interviewed for a job. The kinds of things that you would say you would value. There's like a there's a prompt mm-hmm. that they I can't remember it right mm-hmm. now. And so then the person leaves the room. The experimenter leaves the room. So the person's just sitting there and they're like jotting down all these notes about themselves and they don't know what's going to happen next. Then you know two experimenters." walk into the room afterwards, they sit down and you pretend to record them. You're like, is it okay if we record this session? And, mm-hmm. you know, they're like, yeah. And they have to stand up and they have to give a five minute speech out of nowhere. Oh, to okay. experimenters. <laughs> and the experimenters and this is all unexpected. Face. This is all unexpected. So they're all super confused. Like, wait, what? Like, they're probably thinking, am I in the wrong place? Like, this is a bit of misunderstanding or something? Like, is that... <laughs> That's what they want to say and get out of there, right? Like you can, there are some people when you're doing it, you're just like, oh, I feel so bad for doing this to you. But you have to keep a straight face and, you know, you're, they think they're being recorded. They're not. And you have them give this five minute speech. And if they stop after two minutes, you say, please continue. Your time is still going. Please continue. Your time is still going. Um, there's a set of questions that you can ask to sort of probe them a little bit if they get to about three minutes minutes in and can't do anymore and so that you can keep them going what's the, the goal of the procedure you mentioned i think when you called it it said something social stress so is it to stress mm-hmm. them okay oh yeah and it works i mean it works with experimenters who know what the <laughs> task is if you just get them in the room and get them to practice in front of people like they freak out just as much their mm-hmm. cortisol levels rise and they get all like nervous and shaky and after that's over then you have them do mental math 
<laughs> you uh, buy an, uh, an odd number, like or a prime number or whatever. Like they have to count down by 17 from like 2029 or something. <laughs> it's really bad. And so after it's done, the majority of people are just so glad it's over with. But if you have BPD, you're pissed. Oh. Like, you know, that's not... So then you're sort of like uh, quantifying their reaction or to this to this social stress. Mm-hmm. And so because everybody's going to be affected by the social stress. It's a very powerful manipulation. But... Um, and we're hoping it's not too powerful where we won't be able to see changes and how the people behave on the next set of the Stroop task. Because we're mm-hmm. not only are we com- we're comparing, you know, yeah, post, pre good. and post Stroop. Makes sense, yeah. Yeah, but we're also looking at p- whether proactive or reactive control are affected after the social stress test. There's lots of different things to look at because um, and pro- you can proactive see- versus reactive. It depends on like you know if if all of the trials are incongruent versus if the majority of the trials are congruent, right? Like you exactly. Okay. We manipulate the proportion of incongruent incongruent trials for each block, and then after they're done. We give them, we do the state trait anxiety measure throughout the entire task. And so we're always sort of taking their temperature. And we get a lot of physiological measures like blood pressure and um, pulse. So I imagine that what you're expecting is that the people with the traits from borderline personality are, Mm -hmm. the social stress is going to have a different effect on their cognition compared to the rest of the population. Yeah, we're, I'm hoping that it has some effect on their concentration. And so we might see lapses in concentration and how long it takes them to answer some of the trials. Um, it might take them longer. Maybe they make more errors. Um, you know, and it would be neat to see how long it takes them to adapt. There's this um, conflict adaptation effect that you can examine, whether it takes them whether they're able to adapt to the different types of trials pretty quickly or whether they're able to, or whether they're not, right? Um, So there's different ways to look at these data to make it really salient and interesting and to get at the question. The next step is looking at social rejection and how that impacts cognitive control. And so we would do, um, I don't know if you've ever heard of the cyberball task, but it's pretty well known out there. And no, you basically not in my world. You're like, yeah. <laughs> well, it's like, oh god. At least I know, know this these... at least I know the Stroop test because we use yes. it for like, you know, brain awareness week and things like that. Like that's very popular. I was say, do the mice do the Stroop test? No. <laughs> we, we d- <laughs> in brain awareness week we and and from bra- for like uh you know community science fairs that's a very easy like oh let's do the stroop test and talk about why it's harder uh mm-hmm. to do one versus the other so yeah i love brain awareness week i started the brain awareness week that we had at Sawani, and that was like probably one of my my most like fulfilling like fulfilling contributions <laughs> that's um, nice was yeah, yeah i love it too love it yeah, yeah yeah and the community too i feel like it's a way to like it's sometimes so refreshing to do a little bit of like science outside of the lab you know like with people that are not scientists 
their their excitement is refreshing for mm-hmm. and motivates me to go back to the lab. So I, I feel the same way. I love Brain Awareness Week. Mm-hmm. I just love, I just, I mean, that's why I like going out to the people. Like the science is for the people. Like if we're true. not doing it with that in mind, then why are we doing it? You know, um, you just can't forget who, who we serve. So that's true. Um, yeah. One, um, I just realized that we've talked about your whole research career, but we haven't talked about the challenges. So can you share? Oh. <laughs> um, you know, I think it like nobody has a career path without challenges. And we like um, acknowledging that, you know, it's not just like talking about all the things that work well and all the things that are exciting, but challenges are inherent to everybody's uh, path. So share a little bit about a challenge that you've had. Oh my gosh. It's like, which challenge should we talk about? I mean, I think that's one of the things that I love about looking into my career and thinking back is that I've been really gritty and resilient through this whole process. And I mean, it's not without friends and family there for me. Um, but it's really hard to navigate, you know, predominantly white spaces and the university as a black woman, I guess, for people that aren't seeing you right now. (laughs) Yeah. Yes. Yes. As a black woman, there, there are several times where I have walked in to a room and wondered why I'm actually there. Right. Like, am I here because, they want to boost their numbers or am I here because they really think that I deserve to be here? Um, and that's a hard thing to contend with, especially when imposter syndrome is like a real thing. Yeah. <laughs> um, and it affects most PhDs mm-hmm. <laughs> that I know, yeah. but then, you know, like, race plays a huge role in that too. Um, and also just, you know, with the university environment, having this neoliberal attitude about like bringing in new faculty, it's like, you know, when I was hired at Sewanee, the Dean was like, what do we need to make you famous? Right. And that was a statement. That was a question to make you famous, yeah. right? Yeah. He was asking me what resources I would need so I could become famous. And, you know, I wanted him to instead tell me the structures that are in place that are going to help me be a good teacher, that I'm going to have to publish sound research to serve my community. Um, this person's asking me to become like a science celebrity. And I'm, you know, like you're the leader of this marketplace of ideas. Why don't you tell me what I need to do instead? You know, (laughs) (laughs) it's like, whatever. Um, And so like these neoliberal principles and take away our autonomy because it's like, there's, it's like, it's weird because you think of it as a marketplace, right? Like there's an idea and may the best idea win. Mm -hmm. And um, that doesn't really serve African-American faculty. Um, It's 
you know, already precarious enough to be African-American in STEM research on the tenure track. But now I'm going to have to just like think about how to stretch myself even further and think about like how I'm going to go give lectures to places or how I'm going to get this research published and how I'm going to like get my students to think I'm the best teacher and how I'm going to get grant funding. And that's like a limitation in bandwidth altogether. (laughs) So it felt a little bit like survival of the fittest, you know, it feels like survival of the fittest. It does. I mean, it's like you have this like surmounting stress of teaching. You have the surmounting stress of scholarship and service. And I did a lot of service. I started a neuroscience program. I created the neuroscience major and not without hope. Yeah. Yeah. But, but I mean, I wrote the proposal for the neuroscience major that now exists at that institution. And as a, as a system professor, as like a, you know, junior Mm -hmm. professor. Wow. That's a big contribution. I chaired the IRB. I mean, I, the reason they have, you know, a system and a compliance database is because I was the chair of the IRB and I got all this stuff done. I mean, so like in the meantime, to sort of also be told that you're not enough in some way or another, which happens through gaslighting and racism all the time. I mean, it sucks because you have these feelings of shame and, and low self-worth, but like in the meantime, the administrators, like, have you heard of the, the, the Dunning-Kruger bias? <laughs> No. Where people who are performing, like who are mediocre and don't perform well, don't know that they don't perform well. They don't know they're incompetent. No, I didn't know that I had a name. <laughs> yeah. You're like, I, I know of it, but I didn't know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like that. It's the Dunning-Kruger bias. And that's basically what they suffer from. And I'm over here all like. Am I doing enough? Like, what else can I do? Yeah, you're overdoing likely, you know, like that was Mm -hmm. probably what you were doing because I've seen your CV. The list of service is more than a page. It's a lot. (laughs) Just the service. It's ridiculous. (laughs) So if someone is, if someone is, um, so obviously you mentioned that like family and your friends, like that was your support system. But if someone is going over that, uh, cha- same challenge right now, what will you tell them? I would tell them that, you know, the way universities are run these days can be oppressive and that hold on to principles of community and not individual in- individualistic ways of thinking or ideologies. I would tell them that, like, what can you, what can you provide? Like what experience or skills do you have in connectedness? And that's something that like black faculty don't come in having or really knowing a lot about. I don't want to like speak for all black faculty, Mm -hmm. but I know like for myself, I mean, there are a lot of unwritten rules that you don't really have access to if you are a first gen student Mm -hmm. and, you know, there's just a way to be savvy and, and it takes a while to learn those skills. And so I would say just find that, find a mentor, (laughs) pick somebody out that you trust 
and that you can talk to and that you can have lunch with and that you can air your grievances with. Um, and they've got to be somebody you work with, but they can't be from your department. <laughs> 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 they can't be from your department. When it comes to your department, just do the best you can. Be as professional as you can be and show that cheerfulness through strife if you can, you know, um, and go home and be with your loved ones and do your crying there. Wow. <laughs> and not, not, not that you can't be who you need to be in real in the real world or in your professional life, but I think self preservation for me is really important. Mm -hmm. um, and there are only some people who get to see me sweat. <laughs> not everybody does. <laughs> well, thank you for that piece of advice. Hopefully, it'll be helpful for someone listening. I hope so. All right. Now we can switch gears to something a little bit lighter. <laughs> <laughs> We've been talking for, for a while now, and I want to wrap up just like asking you, what do you do to de-stress? What do you do for fun? <laughs> um, so what do I do to do to de-stress? Well, I would be a, I feel like I would be doing myself a disservice if I didn't say that I had a lot of fun with my kids and that like, I love watching TV with my kids and, and I love to read and my kids like me to read to them, but I like to watch, um, their television shows with them and particularly I like to watch that so Raven because it makes me happy <laughs> and I think she's hilarious she is she is that's true <laughs> and there's a new one too where she's a mom and Chelsea the one of the main characters is on the show with her what's it called the new one Raven <laughs> mom Raven's home Raven's home <laughs> that's cool yeah and it's hilarious and I love it. And I've seen every single episode multiple times. My kids and I like kids can watch things over and over and over again. No problem. And I have like watched every <laughs> single one of them with them. I love it. I, like a new one would come out every Monday and I would be like, don't watch it without me. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah. So that and some Real Housewives of Atlanta or Potomac, like those are my those are my. Turn off the brain. No thinking about <laughs> academic structures when you're watching That's that, right. probably. Let's just like, like hear these these women talk about their drama. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you so much, Brandy. Thank you, Nancy. It was so good to talk to you. Thank you for teaching me all these cognitive uh, tasks. <laughs> I feel like I learned a lot. <laughs> good now i need to like interview you so you can tell me all your research that's true yeah <laughs> next time <laughs> <laughs> well thank you very much for talking to me you're welcome I appreciate that. it's been an honor to to share your story <laughs> 